Today's episode is a rebroadcast of a virtual event at the Center on National Security recorded on October 1st, 2020. Welcome to Vital Interest. My name is Karen Greenberg, and I am the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School. Our podcast is designed to help you understand security in its many dimensions. Each week, we will bring you thoughtful voices from the worlds of policy, government, law, journalism, and advocacy. We will look at the challenges that confront us today and tomorrow, from pandemic to climate change, from terrorism to population migration, from war to peace, all with an eye towards the rule of law, the protection of human rights, and the respect for civil liberties. Vital Interest Podcast is committed to making the world we live in more comprehensible, the part we play in it more engaged, and our futures more secure. It is our way here at CNS of connecting with our times and with one another. Welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Karen Greenberg. I'm the director of the Center on National Security at Fordham Law School, and I am so delighted to introduce today's session, a discussion of Michelle Paradis' new book, Last Mission to Tokyo, uh, which I encourage you all to read. It is a, believe it or not, page turner, um, whose lessons speak profoundly to today, as our guests will tell you. Our guests are the author, Michel Paradis, a leading human rights lawyer and national security scholar. He has litigated and won many high profile cases, including several of the landmark Guantanamo cases, Al Balul, Al Ashiri, and several others. He's been working for the Pentagon's Military Commission Defense Organization. Michelle lectures at Columbia Law School. He's a fellow here at the Center on National Security. And I must mention, he is a Fordham Law grad. Carol Rosenberg, We'll be talking to him about his book. She is award-winning senior reporter for the New York Times, working in collaboration with the Pulitzer Center. Rosenberg has been reporting in the U.S. In, in the US um, and at Guantanamo Bay since the day it opened on January 11th, uh, 2002. She started with the Miami Herald, where before that she had reported from the Middle East. She moved recently uh, to the New York Times. She has won many awards, including the Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Award, the ABA Silver Gavel Award, and she was part of the Miami Herald team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news in 2001. So um, let me tell you the format. Michelle and Carol will talk, um, and then I will come back on, and I will pose some questions that have come from the audience. If you have any questions at all, please feel free to put them in the chat, or if you prefer the Q&A, and I will get to as many as I can. So without further ado, Michelle, Carol, take it away. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I think I'm gonna just talk about the book real quickly. Um, so the story you tell starts this way. The America gets this very cruel sucker punch at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. The Pearl Harbor attacks both galvanized and demoralized Americans. They were angry, probably scared, and they wanted revenge. Four months later, this scrappy bunch of pilots at the center of the story, the Doolittle Raiders, fly deep into Japanese territory, drop bombs on ostensibly military targets and or strategic targets, and most of them make it all the way to China, our ally. And then FDR is allowed to trumpet this victory. Close? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That's the, uh, the Doolittle Raid in a nutshell. So the story I've been covering in what seems like forever goes like this. In 2001, 19 hijackers in a very cruel sucker punch attacked the World Trade Center of Pentagon and uh, crash a plane into uh, a Pennsylvania field, killing civilian targets. Four months later, I watch a military cargo plane land at Guantanamo and dislodge 20 men in orange jumpsuits. And when the photos emerge, it seems to reassure, it's meant to reassure Americans that we got them. That's the setup. In both cases, there would be trials, trials about war crimes, questions about military tribunal justice and due process, and the uh, reliability of evidence gleaned through torture. So my first question is, 
How in heaven's name did you discover this story and what compelled you to tell it? Um, so uh, taking the second part uh, first, um, I think what compelled me to tell it is exactly what you just said. Um, and why, I, how I found the story was, um, you know, I was working in the Department of Defense in the Military Commission's defense organization in 2007. And this was when Michael Mukasey had just been nominated to be attorney general and the debate over is waterboarding torture was rekindled. Um, and we had heard uh, a rumor about a case in which we, the United States had prosecuted the Japanese for waterboarding. And that seemed obviously relevant to the questions we were then confronting in 2007. And so we sent a young Marine captain out to the National Archives to go dig out the record, uh, which I don't think had been seen probably in 60 years at that point. Um, and she came back um, I, on one rainy day, I finally crack it open and read it. And it's the story you just described. It's the story of the Doolittle Raid, uh, which was probably the most celebrated operation of World War II, at least for the people who lived through World War II. Um, it was a story about torture. It was a story about justice. It was a story about revenge. And um, I felt, you know, sitting there in 2007, I was reading this episode from 1945, 1946, um, uh, where the United States is prosecuting the Japanese for doing all the things we were doing in the war on terrorism. And I, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be kind of naive or Pollyannish about it, but it it kind of hit me in the chest. I, I just had this sense of looking, you know, through 60 years of time and all of a sudden just seeing right where I was sitting at that very moment. And the story stayed with me. I didn't write it right away. It was just this thing in the back of my mind that kind of gave context to all the work I ended up doing on the Guantanamo cases for a number of years after that. Um, and then um, I decided, you know, in 2014 um, to try and make a book about it. And, and that's, that's how we got the book we have today. So for the people who are watching, I've been talking to Michelle now for years about Guantanamo. Since 2007, I don't doubt. Yeah, since 2007. His clients have included uh, Omar Khadr, Ali Hamza al-Balul, and Abdul Rahim al-Nashri. One is gone, one is convicted, and he's trying to overturn that uh, conviction, and one is in a pretrial proceeding, uh, which is a capital defense. And when I would talk to him about other things Guantanamo related, he would talk, he was talking about this really weird, obscure episode, like World War II, Japanese air raids far away. And I like thought it was kind of peculiar. And then I got the book this summer and I read it and I got it. And um, the way I read this book, it's divided into sort of three portions, the attacks, the Doolittle Raiders went on a bombing run, the first over sovereign Japanese territory since Pearl Harbor. Or that's the first response over their territory since Pearl Harbor. They did or did not strafe civilians. Most made it across Japan to ditch in China or ally, but the Japanese captured some, part one. Part two is, this is the way I read it, brutal interrogations of the captured pilots, including their waterboarding their trial and the summary execution of some. I hope I'm not doing too much of a spoiler. No, no, no. This is all like in the first three chapters, so you can't spoil any of that. <laughs> they said, the Japanese said, the Doolittle Raiders were war criminals. And then part three, after the US wins the war, we have uh, maybe what you call victor's justice. The Americans recovered the surviving Doolittle POWs who were held in dreadful detention conditions, well worth reading the book to just get, he takes you there. And the United States puts the people who prosecuted the pilots on trial as war criminals. So far. Um, and uh, the reason we're having this conversation now is I remember calling up Michelle over the summer and saying that what struck me about the book is it's written in the language of the military commissions to describe what happened 80 years ago uh, 70, yeah, 75, 80 years ago now. Yeah. 75, 80 years ago. Um, so let's talk about that language. Sure. You call people high value detainees in this book. Who are they? So uh, I think I call them the highest value detainees specifically, but that was a, a deliberate language choice. I, I'm not, I'm not being coy. Um, and those were the Doolittle Raiders. Um, you know, you, you described the Doolittle Raid, um, you know, I think accurately 
in the terms of its the American perception of it, which was in some ways a lot like, as you said, the opening of Guantanamo. I never made that connection until you did, just did, um, that you have this four months go by and we, America shows that it can fight back. And that's the, the sort of the triumphal. Both episodes seem to make America feel better, right? Yeah, and, and that by design, right? It was it, the Doolittle raid had virtually no strategic significance. It was not intended to have it. It ended up having far more strategic significance for the Japanese, and and it's precisely because, um, you know, one of the things I tried to do in this book, um, for reasons we can get into, but I, I just kind of became fascinated by, was the perspective of the Japanese on the Doolittle Raiders, um, and the you know as much as. I think you can sort of look at the Doolittle Raid as sort of our strike back, our celebration of our opportunity to, to show we're in this war to win it. Um, from the standpoint of the Japanese, the Doolittle Raid was 9-11. Um, it's the first time in its recorded history that Japan is ever successfully attacked from abroad, at least on its mainland. Um, it is you know, immediately this moment of fear, of uncertainty, of terror, the basic assumptions of Japanese life get you know, upended all at once. Um, Vulnerability. This sense of right, it's this profound sense of vulnerability and and also outrage. Um, you know, we can talk sort of about the how the Japanese characterized the attack, but um, but they they called it a terror raid, and what they focused on was not the bombing of the Mitsubishi plant uh, or the oil tankers. They focused on the civilians killed um, in the context of the Doolittle raid. Uh, to them, it was this great atrocity. They called it guerrilla-style air raids. They literally called it an act of terrorism. Um, and so for them, when they captured the Doolittle Raiders, uh, they had essentially their own Guantanamo almost four months later. There, there seems to be a symmetry to all of this. Um, because when they captured the Doolittle Raiders and they tortured them, and there's this debate about essentially what to do with them, it exposes all of the, the challenges that we faced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, and that really continued to this day, over you know, to what extent do we act on revenge? Do we act on the ability to show our power over our prisoners uh, versus our ideals? Um, and I think one of the things that surprised me, um, and, and this is probably because I was not a Japan historian uh, before working on this book, is Japan conceived of itself as an incredibly progressive liberal society. They were the first country to sign the Geneva Conventions of 1929. Um, and so they, they had prohibited torture um, at the end of the 19th century, and they almost prohibited the death penalty as part of this massive liberal revolution uh, in their own thinking. And so, you know, when the Doolittle Raid happens, they kind of just revert to the same forms of brutality for almost exactly the same reasons with the same excuses um, that we did, throwing out values that they claimed to hold just as dear as we did. Um, and, and that to me was just an incredibly compelling parallel. Um, between the two. And, and I think it's just as important to understand the Doolittle Raid as Japan's 9-11 um, in understanding how and why they did what they did. And they're high value detainees because they're the first. The, yeah, well, they're not the first prisoners of the Japanese by any stretch of the imagination, right? Japan is, has been waging war at this point right. for four or five months, um, but they are the first marquee prisoners. They are the first people that the Japanese themselves, the Japanese population itself cares about who these people are. Um, right, they're not just some combatants in the Philippines or in Singapore. Um, these are the people who perpetrated the attack against us that you know had that sort of created this real turning point uh, in our own sense of you know national identity, our own sense of vulnerability, um, and so they became really the you know to the very very tippy high highest levels of the Japanese government. The Doolittle Raiders were a political issue um, and. And, and that's because they had such high value uh, to Japan. On page 22, you call the Japanese interrogations enhanced. And I know it's lunchtime, but can you describe what happened to the Doolittle Raiders? Yeah, so I, I, I do describe it. And again, I, these are, you know, these are somewhat coy word choices. This is not a book about the war on terrorism overtly. I don't draw these parallels out directly. You, you're really the first person to really unpack all of them, I'm sure. Um, but I did choose language at certain parts of the book quite precisely to, to cause the reader to reflect upon the parallels that I was seeing as I wrote it. Um, and so the torture enhanced interrogation um, that the Japanese subjected the Doolittle Raiders to was waterboarding, as you mentioned, um, but also sleep deprivation, 
what we would call stress positions today, uh, protracted solitary confinement, uh, and then other forms of, you know, really incredible brutality that, you know, look incredibly familiar um, to what the United States was responsible for doing in the immediate aftermath of September 11th. And, and I think one of the things that was poignant to me about that is what I talked about when I first read this in 2007 is, you know, I, again, I kind of grew up in a very sort of tradi very traditional sort of Appalachian, Pennsylvania uh, view of America and American history. Um, like my grandfather never drove a Japanese car. Um, and so to see the United States behaving as the Imperial Japanese was just such a, was such a jarring moment um, in thinking about what the country what road the country had gone down. Um, and when you get down even to the, again, the precise methods of torture um, being reflected back in modern day, it was really just stunning. Um, it was really stunning to me. I mean, I don't think it's overt. I'm not suggesting that this is, you know, an overt reference to Guantanamo, but it is the language of today. And yep. that's how we, how we talk about it. And so when I read it and people who've worked on this, on this issue read it, I think they see it. Other people, I imagine, read it and don't even recognize that um, the language. Yeah, I, th I think that's probably true. Most of my readers, you know, when have who've written to me anyway, um, really do see it just as a traditional World War II story slash legal thriller. Um, and I and that was my intent too. I didn't want to, um, you know, I didn't want to make it a polemic, and and it's not. Um, and I wanted to actually try and wrestle with the ambiguities that I have wrestled with in my career um, dealing with these issues. Um, in a, in a way that was, you know, kind of honest. I, uh, I didn't, you know, I find, I find, you know, there are two kinds of history that are very popular and get very wide audiences. One is the sort of fairy tale history, um, which we're all quite familiar with, you know, look at a Michael Bay movie and you're going to see like a fairy tale history. Um, but there's also kind of this polemical history where, you know, um, you know, everything, everything the United States do, does is, is shit. And, um, and it's just sort of this expose kind of history um, that's attempting to sort of expose the worst uh, about, you know, the United States or any other country that it's being written about. Um, and, I, and I just find both of those kind of naive. Um, and I think it's naive in our own time as well to look at these issues with this hard edged black and white understanding. I think, you know, people do things, good people do bad things and they do it for good or at least understandable reasons. And the same, by the same token, bad people do good things um, for bad and just understandable re reasons. And you know, this this book was in a way for an opportunity for me to kind of wrestle with a lot of that, um, with the distance, at least, of not having to think about the contemporary issues that we're dealing with, but to the distance of thinking about it as, you know, as history. But you do work at Guantanamo on cases involving undisputable torture. And so, without risking anybody's security clearance, you're the yeah. only one in this group who has one. Um, some of it sounds like it's like ripped from the page of the Senate report on the RDI program. Um, uh, well, it, it's not ripped from the Senate. The, I, you know, this book, um, one, one thing I'll sort of just highlight for, for readers, um, you know, the book I think is about 1700 footnotes, uh, a little more than that actually. Um, and so this is all just, this is a history. This is a straight history. Um, I meant more like sort of the narrative, the again, the uh, language. I yeah, I, I think, again, I'm not going to say, of course, um, you know, because these are, you know, I think so. So, for example, I'll, I'll choose a language. I'll, I'll point up a language choice that I made quite, quite consciously. Um, and, and and I did this across the book and not just about questions of torture. I used modern language, um, including like saying, referring to something as Beijing instead of Peking. Right. Just because I find readers are going to get confused if I'm using all this archaic language. Um, but one place where I had to think about that a little more carefully was the use of the phrase waterboarding, which was not the current phrase used in the 1940s. The phrase used was the water cure. That's typically how there were a couple of other water torture, uh, drip torture, you name it, a couple of expressions for it. But water cure was probably the most common. Waterboarding doesn't really come back into American parlance really until the post September 11th period. Um, and so choosing to use the word waterboarding as opposed to the archaic water cure was again a conscious choice to say, look, this is the same thing. Um, and we shouldn't get lost in our own euphemisms or in the euphemisms of the past to try and draw distinctions where they actually don't exist. Um, and so, yeah, I, I did do that deliberately. Um, and, and I did that, I think, because doing it, because I, I honestly didn't want to mislead the reader. Um, I wanted to make the, what was being talked about as clear as possible. 
And I think often when history tends to use archaic language or the language of the period, it's just lost on on um, on the reader. Um, for the same reason, I'll, I'll point this out, um, is uh, like the 1940s, especially the period I'm writing about, has a lot of very casual racism in it. Um, and so, you know, the word, um, the word Jap just comes out of everybody's mouth without even thinking about it. So newspaper headlines, you name it, um, high and low. And I had, I kind of made the conscious choice to restrain my use of quotations in which that was included because to a modern reader, it's extremely jarring. You, you, be, you sort of make judgments about people using it that just, I think, are misleading because it doesn't. It is. And there is an uncomfortable use of it in the book. There are, there are a few, and, and those were deliberate choices as well. Um, you know, I, I use, I, I did choose language very carefully um, because I wanted, I wanted to convey the reality of the situation. I wanted to make it a good yarn too, to be, to be really candid. I wanted people to enjoy what they were reading. Um, but in certain language choices, particularly things like with, you know, as you said, um, there are a couple, there are one or two uses of the word Jap in the book, um, but those were very specific choices because I thought at those moments, using that word was necessary to convey things like the alienation, right? The, the sense of alienness and the sort of the racial dynamics that were actually at play and that were at front of mind. But putting, you know, using the word Jap in every instance in which I could have based on the quotes I was using, I think it would have, um, it, would have it, would, it would either dulled you to those moments um, and also just been distracting because it's, it's, it means something different today. Michelle, who are the war criminals in this book? Um, and, well, that's a great question. Um, who are the war criminals? Um, there are and so the book, three stories, right? Yeah. So it, there are two war crimes trials um, in this book. One is the war crimes trial that the Japanese conduct of the Doolittle Raiders, which is by any measure a show trial, right? The whole thing lasts about an hour. Um, it's passed under an ex post facto law. They use evidence derived from torture. Uh, everyone gets a death penalty as expected. Um, and so, you know, the Japanese accused the Doolittle Raiders of all being war criminals, convicted them and executed them and sentenced them as such. Uh, and then the second part of the story is the United States finding the Japanese who conducted that trial uh, and accusing them of being war criminals for essentially conducting an unfair trial. Um, and so what you end up having in 1946 is the trial of a trial. Um, and so, you know, who are the war criminals in this book? Um, you know, I, do you, I guess, I don't know. I'd, I'd be reticent to answer that question because I want that question to actually hang over the book um, as people read it, uh, because it is one of, again, one of the efforts I, I tried to do, uh, hopefully successfully, um, is to not present it as a fairy tale, not present it as an obvious morality play, but really to at least give you the perspective of all the various people involved so that you uh, could wrestle with these questions in the same way, frankly, that I have over the past you know, 15 years doing these Guantanamo cases. Um, these, these are hard questions, and anyone who says they're not hard questions, uh, I'm not saying torture is a hard question, I'm not, but, but when it comes to things like war criminality, responsibility, um, you know, victim status to be able to, to claim that you are a victim, um, these are incredibly um, fraught questions, and, and they're difficult, and they should be, um, because they're, they're real questions, they're not fairy tale questions. What are legitimate maybe legal targets in 1941 and 42. So the law of war to be candid was pretty in flux at the time. And so it's not like you had, um, you know, there were efforts to create treaties about aerial combat in the 1920s, but they never got off the ground. No, no pun intended, sorry about that. Um, but the, you know, there, but there was a sense, and this was not true in the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom had taken a pretty aggressive view of just bomb civilian populations and the more people you kill, the better. Uh, the Germans basically took that view as well. The Japanese certainly took that view in places like Nanking. Um, the United States, though, had resisted this quite aggressively. And so there was this very deliberate policy that was ingrained in U.S. Army Air Force officers uh, throughout the 1930s and 40s that only military targets, targets that are essentially industrial or, or directly military in nature, are legitimate. And that the deliberate targeting of civilians is fundamentally illegitimate. Um, you know, certainly collateral damages can be accepted. Um, but we don't deliberately try and kill as many people as possible. We're trying to break what the um, what the uh, sort of war planners or the strategic planners of the time called the, the industrial bottlenecks, the, the means by which the enemy wages war. Now that changes over the course of the war, never explicitly, incidentally, um, which is its own interesting story. Uh, but, but certainly by 1945, 
with Curtis LeMay's bombing campaign against Japan, first the firebombing, uh, and then obviously the two atomic bombings, the, um, at a minimum, tolerance for civilian casualties um, goes extremely high. Um, and, you know, the, the pretexts um, of targeting military targets become more and more pretextual. Um, even in the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, there's this, uh, you can read these debates about, uh, we're actually targeting this military school in Hiroshima. That's what we're bombing with this atomic bomb. And I, and I, you know, I think there's a certain bad faith quality to that, of course. Um, but certainly in 1941, 1942, the United States took the, you know, the decision, took the targeting of military targets, vice civilian targets very seriously, um, at least, uh, you know, on paper and in doctrine. And um, the one, before I sort of go on too long of a rant about this, I'll say the one, you know, piece of evidence that I directly have for this in the context of the Doolittle Raid is uh, Doolittle made the target selections. Um, and they were all industrial targets. And, in, and then the pilots all got together to draw cards to see who got to bomb the Imperial Palace. And Doolittle called a stop to it. He's like, we're not bombing the Imperial Palace. It's not a military target. Um, and moreover, we don't want to give the Japanese cause to accuse us of wrongdoing or to give them uh, an opportunity to rally around the leader. We're, we're going doesn't, to... Yeah. Doesn't Jimmy Doolittle also, um, if I remember from your book correctly, remember that or, or recognize that over in England, people are rallying, ar rallying around royalty and that this he he's very strategic in that regard. He's like, well, we don't want to... Well, you explain it, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's exactly right. So one of his major... Um, one of his major like express rationales was that the Battle of Britain had been actually pretty effective at demoralizing the British population uh, until the Germans hit Buckingham Palace. And then that created this opportunity for everyone to kind of rally around the flag and to say, well, if the king can take it, so can we. Um, and so Jimmy Doolittle explicitly said, look, the emperor is completely off limits. We do not want to give the Japanese any opportunity to rally around anybody. We, we have to make this essentially an above board operation. Um, and, that, and that was actually expressive of US policy and strategy in 1942. Can I just switch to my little pet peeve, which is, were these trials open? So the Japanese trial was not, it was and held- in an uh, hour, was anyone there for that hour long trial? So um, Japanese soldiers from the 13th army were allowed to kind of muddle in. And it was apparently quite a, it was quite a show, uh, at least for the people in Shanghai, but the, the trial itself was quite, uh, was held in secret. Um, and the fact that so many people were allowed to attend, uh, this is actually not in the book, but I, um, but I became a point of contention. Uh, and the army actually sends word down that these trials must be held in secret, you morons. Like, why are you letting so many people watch these things? These are supposed to be secret trials. Um, the American trial, though, was held entirely out in the open. Um, and that was a big point of uh, you know, essentially a point of pride, but also a point of policy that the United States war crimes trials um, that took place in the Pacific and also Europe didn't engage in this kind of closed session. We're going to have all this secret evidence presented in secret. They uh, had them in, in public. Um, they were very keen to keep the press there and involved because the press coverage was seen as important in terms of relaying the facts that were being um, disclosed about access criminality, but also you know, as, as a kind of a transparency measure to show that the United States was acting above board. Um, and so, yeah, transparency, uh, to use a fraught word for you, I'm sure, um, you know, was actually a really important value in the military, in the military trials that happened after World War II. It did have the advantage, though, of the war being over. So this is, you know, one of the things we're up against at Guantanamo, the argument that the war is ongoing and therefore there needs to be a certain level of secrecy. It struck me that the American tribunal is done afterwards and were there, there were transcripts, clearly. Mm -hmm. Were there tapes? There were. Um, and and I, this was one of my great research like failures. I tried so hard to find these because the Doolittle trial was actually broadcast on radio uh, every day, live, uh, or at least in delay. Um, and the supposedly tapes existed at some point. But after looking through every potential archive for these, they're, they're just, they just don't exist anymore if, uh, if they were preserved. And I imagine America listened in because the Doolittle Raiders were heroes, right? Absolutely. This is like, it, I mean, again, the Doolittle Reds faded. Yeah, the Doolittle Reds faded in American memory today around things like D-Day and the atomic bombings and all these other major events that, you know, obviously had far more, you know, lasting significance militarily in the Second World War. 
Um, but for Americans at the time, the Doolittle Raiders were unquestionably the most, you know, celebrated, important, heroic figures you could name. Um, there were two movies made about the Doolittle Raid during the war, right? And the war only lasts like four years. So Hollywood was able to generate two blockbuster films, including one that kind of imagines um, the fates of the lost Doolittle Raiders, a, case, a movie called The Purple Heart, um, you know, while the war is ongoing. So this is this is right at the front of mind. And, and in fact, not to, you know, you know, this is kind of an interesting historical point, um, at least for some lawyers perhaps, um, but the Doolittle Raiders, um, so, so in 1942, as, as I mentioned, the Japanese prosecute them uh, and they execute three of them. Um, unbeknownst to anyone at the time, the emperor actually granted clemency to five. Um, but the Japanese just publicly announced that they had punished the Doolittle Raiders. This was in all the Japanese papers. It made it um, at least into some uh, broadcasts inside the United States. And when the fates of the Doolittle Raiders were revealed, um, it was assumed they were all killed. And this set off a wave of public anger and bloodlust like you hadn't seen since Pearl Harbor. Um, this is 1943. And you have members of Congress actively calling for uh, the United States to no longer take Japanese prisoners, right? To just summarily execute all of the Japanese that they come into contact with in revenge for what happened to the Doolittle Raiders. And Roosevelt, to his credit, um, you know, and the War Department um, got in front of this very quickly and said, no, 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 no. We agreed to comply with the Geneva Convention. This is part of the, the values that we are fighting for as a country. Um, we cannot be seen as behaving essentially as barbarically as the Japanese and as a way of kind of either placating or drawing a kind of a line that ends up being historically quite important. Roosevelt says, uh, you know, reprisals aren't needed. We're going to find those Japanese who participated in this and hold them personally responsible. Um, and so it's the first real time that you have, you know, a head of state seriously promising the public that war criminality will be punished. Um, and it becomes this way of an essentially satiating the public's desire for revenge, this desire to find them. You know, we're only going to hold those people uh, who actually were responsible, responsible. Um, and, and that ends up becoming, you know, over the resistance, really, of the Soviets and the British, um, that becomes allied policy over the course of the war. So that by the end of the war, um, you can, you know, war crimes trials, whether or not it's at Nuremberg in the, in the large scale or um, the individual trials like the ones I write about here um, are now just a firm part of American and allied policy generally. Um, but that was no, by no means a foregone conclusion at the beginning of the war. And the Doolittle Raiders were uh, the Doolittle Raiders case and their fate in dealing with the public desire for revenge and justice for them um, was at least one of the major drivers of that, at least as a matter of public opinion. So when the war is over and the Americans decide they're going to put the people who did this that's called injustice justice on trial. Um, one of the prosecutors decides he needs to find the mastermind. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I assume that's not the language of the day. Uh, no, not really. So the, the language of the day was they needed to find those who uh, participated. And the, the problem the prosecutors faced um, is, as you might expect, just from you know, our description of the case so far, that's thousands of people potentially, um, whether or not it's the Kempe Tai goons who you know, tortured the Dula Raiders all the way up to Emperor Hirohito, who had a perfect personal involvement in their treatment. Um, and so when this prosecutor who, I, who, who you know, much of the book is actually just about his story and trying to figure all this out, um, the main question he finds, uh, or the main, the main question, the main problem he confronts is um, who is that? Um, I need to have a person who is the Focal point, and and just as a and why that why that mattered, why that why he was driven that way was at least in part because of Hollywood. Um, I mentioned that one movie that was made, The Purple Heart, um, which comes out in 1944, and has you know a mastermind. It has an evil villain. He even has the sort of thin evil mustache, um, General Ito Mitsubi. Um, and so there's this desire to figure, who is that, right? We want Hollywood has already set this expectation that there is this person. There's one person who's clearly the most responsible. Um, and, you know, it ultimately falls to uh, the lawyers to kind of live up in a way to Hollywood's expectations or the, at least the expectations that Hollywood had set in the public's mind for how this should go. And I, I think that's true today. We have this very 
um, you know, again, simplistic view of, uh, of a lot of these things, particularly relating to culpability. And there's this desire to have the villain and to make sure the villain is the one uh, who gets hung in the end. Um, well, it is, it, it is true that one of your clients is accused of being the mastermind. <laughs> that's right. That, that's right. Um, so Al-Nashiri has been variously accused of being um, the mastermind of the bombing of the USS Cole. Um, but so have about half a dozen other people. And I think that was, you know, that was kind of a parallel that I could see playing out um, in, in the development of this case, in the development of the Doolittle Raider case, is this, you know, you want to have, you want to be able to tell everyone, this is the guy. Um, you know, you want to be able to tell the victims, this is the guy. You want to be able to tell the public, this is the guy. We um, got him. We got him, right? And, um, and that often, I think actually leads to, um, as, you, as, as the book kind of unfolds, actually, there's sort of an interesting um, parallelism or maybe just problem that prosecution confronts is that in their rush to find the guy, um, without doing a spoiler maybe, but in the rush to find the guy, they, they miss the guy. Um, and the guy ends up sort of appearing at the trial uh, in ways that just shock and appall everyone because, you know, they're so intent on essentially satisfying this public expectation for the guy um, that they're so, misled. So in the weird through the looking glass world of this story, in the first trial, the enemy airman's trial, hmm. is Jimmy Doolittle the mastermind? Uh, I guess so, yeah. I think he would be uh, considered as the mastermind. Certainly by the, ja his name comes up in the, um, in the Japanese judgment. They he's say, the oh, one they blame. He's the one they blame. He's the one yeah. who came up with the plan. Yeah. But he doesn't, I mean, but he. But they he, don't have him. He escapes. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's a bomber, but he makes it all the way to the other end and becomes an American hero. Yeah, absolutely. And, and but the people, the Japanese. So um, one of the big debates after the trial um, concludes, after the Japanese trial concludes in August of 1942, um, is they get death sentences against all eight of the lost dual Raiders. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so the question is, do we actually carry out these sentences? And there is, again, this kind of mastermind thinking in how Emperor Hirohito basically splits the baby. They say, OK, we're going to commute the sentences of all of the um, sort of supporting personnel, uh, but we're going to execute the pilots of the two planes because it's two, two uh, crews that get captured. The pilots we are going to execute the pilots and then the gunner, uh, because one of the main allegations against the Doolittle Raiders was um, that they had uh, essentially strafed civilians. Um, and that was one of the major galvanizing um, aspects of the Doolittle Raid in, in the Japanese popular uh, imagination was um, the evidence of, the, of, of children essentially being gunned down in school, fishermen being gunned down um, on beaches, um, hospitals being strafed. Um, and so going after the gunners um, was seen as, as, again, a kind of going after the ones who participated most culpably. Yeah. All of this is supposedly established in a one to two hour trial, right? That's right. Um, so the Japanese- um, Which is not know, a have, trial by any standards that we would consider a trial today. No, absolutely not. Um, and, and, it, and it's a show trial, right? It, it has, so one of the aspects of, yeah. the, of the trial is that they actually don't have, you know, how this unfolds is the, um, so they have these eight guys in these secret prisons inside of Tokyo um, they've gotten pretty much any intelligence they're going to get out of them, at least tactical or strategic intelligence about how, th how the Doolittle Raid took off, what, what Americans uh, sort of uh, uh, military capabilities are in this time. Um, but then there's this real fight over what to do with them. And on the one side, you have people like Foreign Minister Shinigori Togo, who is um, you know, a traditional Japanese liberal. He says, we signed the Geneva Conventions. We didn't ratify it, but we agreed to comply with it in this war. We have to treat them as prisoners of war. It's as, as important for the Japanese as it is for um, the Americans, because there are Japanese all around the world. The Americans are currently interning, you know, tens of thousands of Japanese inside the United States. We don't want to create a pretext for reprisals. We have to set standards we're willing to live by. Um, but then you have hardliners um, who I sort of consolidate, you know, there are a lot of different hardliners, but the one I focus on in the book uh, is Hajime Sugiyama, who's the chief of staff of the army, who calls for the eight Raiders to just be executed summarily. Um, as publicly and as spectacularly as possible as a kind of a show of strength to the Japanese population, certainly, um, but also as a deterrent to the Americans to say, don't you try and bomb Japan again. Um, and this becomes one of the most violent debates in the Japanese cabinet, really since the start of the war. Um, and then Prime Minister uh, and War Minister Hideki Tojo, um, who 
right? You know, I've always kind of thought of as like a John Boehner figure. He's just this kind of somewhat milquetoast politician whose main job is trying to keep all of these irreconcilable factions from killing each other um, in the cabinet. He goes to the war ministry and says, look, there, we got to kill these guys. Is there a way we can do that legally under international law? And the lawyers come back and say, no, you can't, right? You can't. The international law forbids killing prisoners. And so Tojo goes back to the war ministry uh, or Tojo's people go back to the war ministry and say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. Um, we have to kill these people. If we don't find a way of killing these guys, the Kempe Taiji is going to do it anyway. And they're going to claim it was an accident, but no one's going to buy that. And it's going to be this huge diplomatic and political problem. And so what the lawyers do is they, um, you know, put pen to pencil or pen to paper and say, okay, well, if we try them as war criminals in military commissions under international law, we can then just sentence them to death. Um, but that's a problem because they don't actually have a law that authorizes this. So they end up passing an ex post facto law uh, that essentially <laughs> makes it a crime to attack Japanese civilians. Um, and it's called the enemy. Sorry, and it's called the enemy airmen's law of 1942. And uh, they don't, you know, it has essentially extremely broad rules of evidence. Um, it's clearly designed to convict these eight men as quickly and summarily as possible. Um, and that's what it does, right? That, that's exactly what they do. Uh, they issue this law in August of 1942. Within a few weeks, uh, all the Dula Raiders are convicted. And then in October, uh, three are executed and the rest are sentenced to life imprisonment in uh, under special treatment uh, was the euphemism for it. So Karen wants to come. One of the things, okay. that, con one of the things that condemns these trials is that they created a law after the attacks to suit the circumstances. Yeah, it was an um, ex post facto law. Um, and in fact, when we prosecuted the Japanese lawyers, so so what we ended, so what the, I, I, you know, as, as we sort of referred to before, you know, our main, our main target for prosecution in 1946 um, wasn't the emperor, it wasn't the Kempe Tai, it was the lawyers. Uh, you know, the United States punishes the lawyers for essentially conducting an unfair trial. Um, you know, what, what I call in the book, the paperwork for murder. And the, um, the, the key elements that make up the, that charge are its use of evidence tainted by torture, uh, the fact that it's an ex post facto law, they, they actually call the law itself an act of terrorism. Um, the United States calls it an act of terrorism. The fact that the law only applies to non-Japanese citizens, so it kind of violates the golden rule. Um, and it's this, and, and that's what it, ultimately the Japanese are prosecuted for, the, the perversion of justice. Um, and, and, and all of this is why if you follow Guantanamo and you read that book, you feel like it's very familiar. One of the things that Michelle did in, um, in his defense of Ali Hamza al-Balul, and correct me if I'm wrong, is established, am I right, that the crime of material support for terror is ex post facto and not triable by military commission? How did I do? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So that uh, material support for terrorism violates the ex post facto clause, that uh, solicitation, uh, which is another sort of broad, you know, what we call an inchoate offense, um, violates the ex post facto clause, and that the ex post facto clause actually is a constraint on the military commissions. That was a you know a pretty contested position. Um, in the so far, no defense attorney has been able to get any ground on the notion that you can't create a court for a foreign population that's not subject to the American. Yeah, no, not yet. That issue is still banging around. The courts have, I think, quite. Um, so, so it's the, the, essentially the equal protection argument or the denial of equal justice under law, um, the, the violation. It's criticisms of these enemy airmen trials. It is. It was one of the biggest criticisms. What is it? You know, it's the violation of the golden rule. And um, and what's interesting to me in observing these, having tried to bring this act, that, that issue in a number of cases and, and failing not on the merits, interestingly enough, the courts never want to answer this merit. They, they've avoided it. You know, I mean, incredibly bent over backwards to avoid ever having to decide this issue, um, they always just defer it essentially or, or come up with procedural reasons why the issue is not appropriately presented. And I think it's because it's wrong, right? And they know it's wrong, but it's such a challenging and you know, politically, you know, uh, su such, a, such a politically dangerous thing seem, potentially to do, um, to essentially declare that the military commissions in which people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed are being prosecuted for the September 11th trials um, violate such a fundamental principle of American justice. Um, and so they haven't, they've never said it doesn't apply, right? They've never said 
this is perfectly legal to have these essentially segregated tribunals. Um, they've just avoided it like the plague, I think, hoping somehow against hope that the issue will one day go away. Um, and uh, that remains to be seen. That history remains to be seen. The only thing I would regret is that we don't have at this forum somebody from, for example, the prosecutor at military commissions, Mark Martin's here to participate in it because he would have a few things to say, but at this stage, unfortunately, the um, prosecution uh, of the Guantanamo cases is not in any way speaking publicly and only speaking in the courtroom. So we, we find ourselves in this awkward position of having to present the prosecution case. And this, and this is my last thing, which is one of the things Michelle does very helpfully for reporters is he not only articulates his argument, which he just did, but if you ask him to, he'll explain to you the prosecution position on why this is, why you can have a, a case that only prosecutes foreigners. You don't have to do it as passionately, but what is the, what is the answer? Um, so the so the government's avoided answering this squarely too, um, and it's come down to basically two ideas, and and they're pretty thin reads to be candid, um, and, and and that's not just my editorializing. I, I think that's accurate. Is um, one is that detainees don't enjoy any due process rights at all um, as a technical constitutional matter. In fact, uh, an issue like that is actually in the D.C. Circuit right now, and, that, and the premise of that is that Guantanamo detainees, because they are outside of the United States and not citizens, um, are essentially not people for the purposes of the Constitution. It's exactly the same argument, I should say, that the government used in litigating the habeas cases all these years. And they just use the same argument on every constitutional bridge. So that's one. Um, and then they say, even if the, these are people and they're entitled to due process under the Constitution, um, you, the courts have to defer to the executive and legislative branch, the political branches, as they're called, um, in the determination of what's necessary for national security. But they never actually try to defend the segregation of the military commissions on the merits. And, and I kind of, you know, I mean, again, I, I'm not in their heads, but I would say that to me, that at least betrays a certain discomfort with having to justify in 2020, you know, discrimination, you know, set literally separate but equal segregated justice. That, that's something out of Jim Crow. That's something out of the slavery period. Um, and so to try and argue that that's not only the um, lawful in these technical ways, but actually completely justifiable and the right thing to do, I think is just, it's a, it's a hard task even for people like Mark Martins or uh, prosecutors in these cases. Karen, I see there are 15 questions. Yeah, I'm gonna bundle them and see what we can do, but I'm gonna start with Nancy Hollander. Um, who um, thinks you answered her one of her questions, but I'm gonna, I want you to answer it more directly a little bit, which is, you know, did you consider uh, making it more explicit that this was about Guantanamo when you were writing it? And her, another question she brought up, which is more uh, minor, did they actually bomb the school where the boy died? Or not more minor, but less, you know, about the... So um, without, without, um, without getting into too many spoilers, um, one of the kind of more interesting and satisfying parts, frankly, of writing this book um, was seeing the defense counsel um, operate. And, and not just because I've been doing defense counsel work on the Guantanamo cases, but, you know, they're in a far, they were in a far tougher position professionally, politically, personally, um, than I was. In fact, the lead uh, defense counsel uh, was not a lawyer. He was a, uh, a pilot and a decorated pilot at that. And so he was 100% ideologically aligned uh, and in his personal sympathies with the Doolittle Raiders. And he basically, as I explained in the book, takes the case uh, mainly because he's in love with the Russian concierge uh, at his hotel in Shanghai, needs a reason to stay in Shanghai because he's going to be shipped home. And this was the only ticket in town. Um, and so he takes this case just for the absolute worst reasons. And I assume thinking that it's going to be kind of an open and shut case that he just has to stand there as a a well-uniformed potted plant um, to make it look as fair as possible. Um, but what he does, and what really strikes me, you know, is one of the more remarkable parts of this book, is um, he just can't live with himself doing that. Um, and he ends up just grabbing the case and, you know, these his enemies um, who would have happily killed him, uh, you know, he could have been one of the Doolittle Raiders, um, but just makes the decision, I owe it to them. That's my duty. My job in this situation is to simply represent them and give them the best trial I can, the trial I would want if I 
uh, was captured and put into Japanese hands. And he does that essentially at the cost of his military career. He, he ceases basically to be a pilot after this trial um, and ultimately does go to law school um, many years later. Um, but he just commits, you know, he commits to doing his job. And I, and I think, and, I, and I've said in a couple of fora um, that I actually would look to this trial, the American trial of the Doolittle, the Doolittle trial of 1946 as the first fair trial of the post-World War II period. Um, there had been only really three, certainly in the Pacific, prior to this. One was the Yamashita case, which was you know, not the greatest moment uh, for anyone. One was the Hama case, which was also under the thumb of General uh, MacArthur and, and done entirely with expedience in mind. Um, there was another kind of mass trial that was conducted in Shanghai right before the trial of the Doodle Raiders uh, involving a lynching. But this was the first trial where the defense lawyers really just came into it and said, look, we're going to we're going to do our jobs. And uh, as a consequence, it ended up being a really fair trial. So that's me slightly avoiding Nancy's question uh, to avoid spoilers. But they end up, you know, taking positions that in 1946 were just shocking and, and really made them pariahs for, for, even, for even suggesting uh, that the United States might have been culpable of anything in 1942. Can I just insert one thing, which is I think that our conversation got so nerdy. I, I failed to say... This is actually a very interesting story of human people in which he tells you, I mean, here we are admitted, I don't know what, and we and we finally get a mention of the love interest who's the concierge at the hotel in, in Shanghai, right? Um, so don't think you're going to read a polemic on Guantanamo or on war crimes. It, it, it really, it's a, it's a really interesting read. And, you know, we were talking about this yesterday most people just won't see the Guantanamo portion of it because you have to actually have spent time on Guantanamo trials to understand the co-opting of the language. So, sorry, more questions. Okay, <clears throat> I'm gonna bundle a couple. Did you ever interview any of the surviving Doolittle Raiders or Japanese officials, first one? And second, did the brutal treatment of the Chinese who helped the Raiders figure in the charges of the 46 trials? So, so to, yes, I got to interview uh, Jimmy Doolittle's co-pilot, uh, who at the time was 99 and probably way more with it than I am. Um, it was really incredible. He sadly only died about a year and a half ago, Dick Cole. Uh, and he's just such, I think mean, he was such an incredible man, such an incredible American. Um, after the Doolittle raid, he actually ends up staying in China, at least in the China theater, um, and flying missions over what's called the Hump, which are resupply missions over the Himalayan mountains, uh, where something like a third of our planes went down. Um, and so he was just an incredible person, and I, I, I loved being able to speak to him uh, about all sorts of interesting things. And, and as a, an anecdote, I, I relate in the book, um, in the afterword or the uh, in the afterword or the author's note, um, is at one point he just asked me, he's like, "Why do you want to write another book about the Doolittle raid?" And I was like, "I, I know there are a lot of books out there, um, but hopefully I'll be able to tell the story in a new way." Um, so he was a super gentleman, and, and really, it, so that was great. Um, on the the uh, revenge against the Chinese. Um, for their cooperation with the Doolittle right? So one of the things um, that happens is about 60 of Doolittle's men actually make it immediately to safety. Uh, one of the planes, five, five crew members, end up ditching uh, in, the, uh, um, uh, in the Soviet Union and causing a bit of diplomatic incident. Uh, three are killed in various plane crashes jumping out, but all the rest, so that's what, 64 um, of the Doolittle Raiders not only survive, but they make it home, right? Or make it out of um, occupied China. And with the help of the, um, a, a number of the Chinese who are quite sympathetic to the Americans. And one of the things I actually write about a little bit in the book is uh, Japan's response to this um, was just mind-numbingly stupid, for one, but brutal. Um, you know, I mean, there, there are certain estimates. It's you always have to be careful with casualty estimates one way or another. Um, but there are estimates saying that as many as 40,000 Chinese are, are killed in uh, essentially a... Um, well, I don't know. I don't know what you call it—a terrorism operation that the Japanese army conducts in in China uh, after the Doolittle raid, whose sole purpose is to destroy every airfield in China to prevent the Americans from, in essence, landing um, in China again. Um, that and that included. I remember meeting. I, I, I didn't get to meet any of the the people sort of who were you know involved or had any personal relationships. But I went to um, this city called Kuju. Um, which is a couple hours um, uh, to the west of, of Shanghai. 
and, and that was actually the Doodle Raiders rallying point. Um, and there's a cave there where they, they sort of hold up for a couple of weeks uh, where apparently Chinese teenagers now go to, to sort of make out and hide from their parents. Um, but the, this, the town itself, because it had been the base, um, the rallying point for the Doodle Raiders, becomes just this brutal target for the Japanese Expeditionary Army. Um, and it's, it's bombed just mercilessly for, for weeks. Um, when the airfields are destroyed, they actually impress the Chinese into slave labor to manually break up the airfield um, with pickaxes and shovels, um, which is just, again, brutal, like a, a brutal kind of slave labor. Um, there's uh, some evidence, at least, and, I, and I, it's compelling evidence, but I, I haven't researched it enough to, to give you a competent answer. The Japanese even used uh, chemical weapons uh, on Kuju, essentially, to, to, kill the, to just kill civilians. Um, so yeah, the Doodle Raid provoked this, this you know, utterly ruthless uh, response against the Chinese. Um, to the specific question that was raised, it was not, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, a lot of those revelations did not come out in time for the trial. Um, you know, the American understanding of atrocities against the Chinese, even in 1945, 1946, were largely reserved to things like the rape of Nanking. Um, and so, um, those revelations really came out through a lot of scholarship that was done really in the past 20 years, um, and some of which in my book, but, uh, in, um, but there's another scholar who, who worked on some of these problems too. A quick question. Is your book being translated into Japanese and published in Japan? Uh, I, I hope so. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I've had a, I, I don't know actually, it is, is the perfectly candid answer. Um, I've, uh, I, a number of Japanese people have read it and, and have, I, I think appreciated it. They've said they have appreciated it, but um, Japanese culture is very polite, so I don't know if they would tell me if they hated it or not. Um, but I hope it's there because I think it's, um, again, it's not, I, I don't, I really resist any kind of effort on the American or the Japanese side, either at moral relativism or equivalence or, or caricature or, you know, fairy tale telling. Um, I try to take the perspective of the different, you know, people involved, even when they're the villain. Um, there's a whole chapter um, about, uh, someone who actually is kind of the closest thing to the mastermind um, in the entire book. And it's written from his perspective. And he's unquestionably a villain. He ends up getting tried as a war criminal in another trial for other war crimes he commits. Um, but I, I do try just because I don't find, I find, frankly find history that's that's too simplistic or caricature boring. I just don't enjoy it. Um, but also I just think it's not history if you're not actually trying to help inform people to explain why people are doing things. If you don't explain that, um, it just, it gets, it's a Wikipedia entry. It's not, it's not actually a, a history. To what extent did Cold War politics affect the selection and prosecution of perpetrators of war crimes against prisoners of war? I think that's a... It was a that was a huge um, influence. I, I don't go, you know, I mean, the book stops basically in March, April of 1942, uh, or for, sorry, March, April of 1946. Um, so a lot of those decisions end up coming later, uh, particularly with, for example, both German and Japanese scientists uh, uh, who end up getting left off the hook. But two of the issues that I do address, one is uh, Emperor Hirohito. Um, MacArthur famously um, actively absolves Emperor Hirohito of culpability for anything. And that was an incredibly controversial decision at the time. It actually wasn't publicly released um, in the time period I write about, but I do write about it because it's, it's in the water at the time uh, the decision is made in January of 1945 or 1946. Um, and then there are also individuals who MacArthur basically picks and chooses as being too important, um, lower people, light, but for the same reasons as being too important to the sort of re reconstruction and occupation program. Um, and, and part of that, you know, I, again, this is still early 1946, but at least part of that is an understanding that it's in the United States as military and strategic interests to um, get Japan on its feet as quickly as possible, if nothing else as a counterweight uh, to the Soviets who have a lot of interests, you know, who, who sort of are a long-term rival of Japan, um, but also this Chinese civil war, which is in the background of this book um, and comes up a couple different times, um, is kind of a major driver of policy because, and, and I'll just say this is like, I, this is a long answer to a short question, so I apologize. Um, but one of the things I do try and why I try and really get into people's perspectives um, and including, and, and that includes things like how people are viewing the Chinese Civil War, um, is that I, it, I also find it important to think about history as it's lived, not as we know it to have happened. Um, and so now, obviously, we know Mao Zedong and the People's Liberation Army take over the you know, mainland of China. 
and Chiang Kai-shek gets pushed into, you know, what is now Taiwan. Um, but no one knows that at the time, right? At that time, in 1945, 1946, there's just a civil war in China. And, um, and that's having all sorts of political implications uh, and military and strategic implications that people are trying to deal with in real time. Because again, no one at the time knows how the story ends. Um, and so I tried to convey some of that in, um, in, in presenting just the context in which all this is happening. There's a really good question there, which is, will we ever have a trial of a trial? Which is, I guess, what we did in that case. But I think the the the, the questioner is saying, um, contemporary, com currently, is there a possibility to ever have a trial of a trial? Um, so, have a trial of the 9/11 trial, essentially. Um, That's not what the questioner is asking, but you know, you, you could look at any number of cases. I mean, whatever you want to answer, but I think it's so a really interesting idea. It is, um, and I'll, I'll point you to one example. The closest I think anything has come, uh, are, there are two things. One is the Obama administration uh, for a number of complicated um, and debatable, I'll just say that much, um, policy reasons decided to not seek accountability or even all that much transparency about um, the abuses of the war on terrorism. And uh, John Durham, uh, is, who is now sort of famously working on the investigation of the Russia investigation, uh, was put in charge of, of that policy, essentially. Um, but there were other, there were civil suits, um, including one that was brought by Jose Padilla, who you know, was an American citizen who um, was involved in terrorism, um, ultimately gets prosecuted and sentenced to, I think, 25 years. Um, but he is subjected to all sorts of abuses as well and brought a lawsuit against John Yu, um, I want to say maybe about five or 10 years ago. And the courts ultimately dismissed that suit, um, not because John Yu didn't do anything wrong, but because of a doctrine that people probably are a little more familiar with today than they were then of qualified immunity, um, which is that you have to clearly and unambiguously show that what the government did was wrong. Um, and so you've had these civil suits that have tried to go essentially after the lawyers. Um, and they haven't been successful so far. Does that, will that hold up over time? Um, I don't know, that, that's kind of the, that's, that's, what, that's why it's history. We won't, we won't know if, for example, the International Criminal Court brings charges against Americans for complicity um, as lawyers. We, we just won't know until something like that happens. Um, but you're that, saying really the format would be a civil suit. Uh, well, they've tried that and failed. Um, the International Criminal Court in The Hague has been investigating Afghanistan, um, including American war crimes in Afghanistan. Could they theoretically charge uh, American lawyers um, for complicity in things like the torture memos? Uh, it's not inconceivable. I think the Doolittle Raid case is actually a precedent uh, for that. Will that happen? Will that be politically feasible? It, will that even be a good idea? Um, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, we, that, that's that's why it's history. Just wanted one more time to emphasize. The book is not as nerdy as this conversation. No, no. I, the book is nowhere as near as nerdy as I am. <laughs> so <laughs> so if, if you're interested in the book, don't take don't take it as um, give it give it a shot. I think you'll find it a really interesting read of a period in history that we don't really know about and people that you know you've never heard of. Plus, Michelle, you could probably start your own blog on, you know, week by week, what's happening in Guantanamo and how this relates to book. <laughs> I mean, it would be, it'd be fine. We'd all read it. Um, no, it really is a good read. And no, it's not. What's wrong with being nerdy, by the way? I'm just <laughs> like, I, I, sorry, but it's not. No, yes, it's a it's a page turner. It's illegal. Um, it was written as a legal thriller. So don't. Uh, yeah. There you go. It's a legal thriller. So. A couple, of, it's funny that you say it's written as a legal thriller because um, I just want to like read back to you something you said. You said, well, there are these two kinds of history. There's fairy tale history and there's polemical history. And then I guess the third thing is, and then there's just enjoyable history. There's, <laughs> you know, like what? Boring so, history. Hopefully this is not one, but there's hopefully, <laughs> no. there's hopefully enjoyable uh, nuanced history as well, which okay. is what this is. Okay, so um, so this was a, a wonderful conversation. I just I want to say a couple things before I um, I just want to tell you both one thing is that did you know that there's a torture museum in in Tokyo? Have you been there? Hmm. No, I didn't know I, that. I have. And waterboard. There are many different kinds of torture things that are referred to, but the water cure is one of them. And I just thought that you would want to know that. Now you don't have to go. But yes. it's interesting, though, that, that they yeah. have such a thing and that it's just kind of like a, a little um, footnote. 
And a couple of other things I have to say. Every time I watch Carol, this is why I want her to come in, I learn, wow, that's how you, that's how you get the information you get. That's how you see the, the insides of what's going on. So uh, look at, the, no, it's terrific. And so thank you so much for this. Um, come back anytime. Uh, I want to do an advertisement for our upcoming event on October 15th with John Brennan and Samantha Power to talk about his new book, which, was com which is coming out on uh, Tuesday called Undaunted. So, and it's a memoir. So I think um, that will be a lot of fun, but I cannot thank you enough. I know how appreciative um, our guests are and they have many, many comments but, and questions, but we'll just have to bring you back. Thank you so much. Thank you, both of you. Thank Bye. you, Karen. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's conversation. We hope it made your day a little brighter, a little clearer, and a little more informed. Join us next time for the newest installment of Vital Interest Podcast. In the meantime, feel free to send us your questions at vitalinterestpodcast.org and to follow us on Twitter at VI underscore podcast CNS. And make sure to check out our daily morning brief, our weekly cyber brief, and our Vital Interest online forum at centeronnationalsecurity.org. Have a wonderful week and please stay safe.